From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They're lifelong friends whose relationships been tested over the years. When I saw Lonnie initially, I was afraid of her. They've navigated racism, police harassment, and politics. In 1970, I just remember it being a really difficult time for our friendship. And I don't mean difficult for the two of us. I mean difficult for people around us. How could we be friends with each other? A uniquely personal take on the state of the world today. Then the increasing impact COVID-19 is having on college campuses. And an unsettling phenomenon. Why are birds falling out of the sky? It appears that this cold snap that we had was really sort of the final blow for these birds that were in the middle of their migration. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Racism, inclusivity, equity, division, they're words that get tossed around a lot these days. We're going to get some perspective now from two lifelong friends whose relationship has stood the test of time. My name is Lonnie McCabe, and I met my friend Melody um, in 1969 in Park Hill, my first white friend. I am a resident of Denver, but I was not born in the state. My parents moved here during the Great Migration from the South. I met Melody in 1969. Her family were one of the first white families to move to Park Hill, which at that time, before gentrification, was a predominantly black community. Uh, My name is Melody Vickers. My family moved here when my dad, who was in the Air Force, got stationed at Buckley A&G Base. And so when I moved into Park Hill, you know, I had never been around black people. When I saw Lonnie initially, I was afraid of her. We became friends because I remember walking by the house and you were standing outside the gate. And when I walked by, (laughs) you went back inside the gate. (laughs) I was on my way to that store on 23rd, right? Mm -hmm. The little Spinelli's. Yeah, and it's still there. And on my way back, she was inside of the gate, and I said hi to her. And that is how the ice was broken, because I would walk by and say hi, and then... I asked her name, and I could see by her, her posture that she felt a little more comfortable. Now keep on dancing, keep on doing the jerk, shake it, shake it, baby. She would come over to my house, and we'd hang out in the basement and listen to the Bay City Rollers and Heat Wave and... I would introduce her to my mom's English ways. Like, I know she remembers eating sausage rolls and flans. Mm -hmm, My favorite, butter banana sandwiches. That was the weirdest thing that I remember. I was two grades further along than Melody, so... Integration in Colorado started in 69 and 70, and Melody was going to Stedman, and I was going to Smiley. And 
at that time, desegregation was the, the schools that it impacted the most were Smiley and East High School, two schools that we both went to. And in 1970, I just remember it being a really... Um, a really difficult time for us and our friendship. And I don't mean difficult for the two of us. I mean difficult for the people around us who, you know, kind of may have thought that our friendship was awkward. How could we be friends with each other? I mean, I would get on the bus every day with a lot of black kids. I was probably one of a few white kids that was getting on the bus and so it was, I think it was a very difficult process back yeah. then. It was still an angry time. People were still angry. angry. Yeah. People were still angry. And you have to remember that James Brown's song, uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, came out in 69. And we were singing it all over the neighborhood, yeah. you know, and it was the first time that there were accolades for black people to enjoy being in their own skin. So, like I said, it was it was a very turbulent time. What I remember is meeting my ex-husband in 79 and moving to Washington State. And we didn't, we lost contact then. Yeah. About yeah. 10 years, almost 10 years. Yeah, probably because we reconnected in 96. 19... 96. Yeah. At that time, I was preparing to go on a pilgrimage with the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception with the children's choir. We were planning a trip to Israel. And so Lonnie encouraged me at that time. I was working a paper route and trying to raise. She hated it. <laughs> I hated it. That was a life-changing trip. I mean, that totally changed my life it going did. to Israel. You were different when you came back. Yeah. I had some really incredible experiences in Israel. So it kind of solidified my, my faith, my Christian faith. It made me a stronger Christian. That's Melody Vickers speaking with her childhood friend Lonnie McCabe of Denver. Lonnie was Melody's first black friend. They've stayed close all their lives, but that doesn't mean their friendship hasn't faced obstacles. We'll pick up in 2006 when Lonnie and Melody remember a troubling encounter with a police officer that led them to work with social justice organizations in Denver. Lonnie and I, she had just moved from her apartment off of 11th. Jackson. 11th and Jackson. So we were going down 13th towards Colorado Boulevard. And in front of us, there was a police car. And, you know, I, I'm like most people. I, I avoid the police at all. You know, like I will. And so I got, I was behind him and I thought, you know, okay, when we get across Colorado Boulevard, Instead of turning left on Jackson, I turned left on the street before it. I don't right. know what I forget. was it Harrison Adam? or something. Harrison, yeah, something like that. And this cop is going one way down Thirteenth, and he's in front of us, and he turns into this driveway and backs up, and ends up following us around the block. And I'm like, okay, he's going to mess with us. I know he is, and I'm saying this to Lonnie in the car. Mm -hmm. And so we went around the block, and he's following us, and then we pulled up in front of her apartment, and he turns his lights on. And I'm like, okay, we're going to be harassed here. 
get ready. So he came over, and I had my purse was in the trunk. So I told him, I said, well, look, I need to get out of my car to get my purse. But I asked him, you know, why did you pull us over? I was bold enough, and he didn't say nothing. Yes, no, he said something. He said, um, get out of the car. Yeah. He was well, really rude. Yeah, he was rude. It was like, so I get out of the car, and then he starts giving Lonnie, who's a passenger, the third degree. Like, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Where do you live? I mean, seriously. I need to see your ID. Yeah, where's your ID? You know, I I wasn't uh, combative because I was tired, and I gave him the ID. And then he was rude to Melody again when she gave, and she asked again, why did you stop us? And he lied. It was a bold-faced lie. What? When he came back after checking our IDs and all of that, he said, well, your back brake light was out, and, you you know, I'm not going to give you a ticket. He didn't give us a ticket. Yeah. And after he left, I... I said, let me check the back brake light. So I got out. She pressed the brake light, and it was not out. But you were in, so incensed because you were in school at that time. And I then, was going to Metro, mm-hmm. and I wrote a paper about what happened. By the time the 2016 election had come around, I was working at History Colorado telling the story of Linda Tucker Kai Kai. And Melody was doing, we were doing all kinds of anti-racism work. We were... Um, we go to New York to see oh my daughter's God, shows. We, we went to New York every year. Every mm-hmm. year we did. we did. And then the 2016 election came along, and I didn't even know that... Melody was even considering voting for Donald Trump until I got a call from her daughter. And she was just very concerned that her mother was talking about voting for Donald Trump. And please, please convince my mother, please. I had a long conversation with Melody and I brought up the fact that, you know, we need to look at his ethical behavior. I'm talking about the things that he said from the moment that he stepped off of that escalator, saying these things that were very, very divisive and very, very racist in my eyes. I thought that it would, you know, it would have an impact. And apparently it didn't. (laughs) Um, your 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 attitude was was dis- disconcerting to me my friend it really was that was the the beginning of um tortured relationship that is the moment that i stopped trusting you yeah because she felt betrayed because i'd done all this social justice work Lonnie and I have been having a lot of conversations about why i would vote for him knowing what i know knowing that he was this way And I think, you know, deep down inside, uh, white privilege and white entitlement also plays a role in that. You know, I think we're all trapped in our own, you know, sometimes our belief systems, the white male patriarchy type of thing that we've lived with for hundreds and hundreds of years and my Christian belief systems staying more 
towards the conservative viewpoint. I think that a lot of us white people, we have inflated egos. We've always been in a position of power. It's we've always run things. White men have always run things. In hindsight, that was probably, that was a decision based on my inflated ego. I want to thank her for helping me to erase some of the uh, preconceived ideas I had about white people, especially growing up in Texas, which is very racist, and giving me a new sense of heart and openness to be accepting of folks. Now, I did do this. I did say that I didn't want any new white friends because of my relationship, because of what happened with her. And I put that on Facebook. And I had a lot of support because people understand, because I just don't know what white people are safe right now. But I also need her help in coming back to that, because after that, I just, I don't know who to trust. And I need to say that I'm sorry I hurt you and I betrayed you and that... Um, Don't... You know I'm going to love you regardless, but we got to work through this. That I love you and I am an ally. I think we're all in a process of growing and this is a growth it's a learning experience. You know, we're all trying to process and grow and become better human beings. We're not going to get anywhere hating on each other. Melody Vickers of Denver speaking with her childhood friend and first black friend, Lonnie McCabe. Their friendship is one that persists through discussions about the social injustice and divisions that permeate America today. You can see photos of the two at CPR.org. Special thanks to Alexandra McMahon, who produced this segment. Students at the state's largest university begin remote-only learning starting today. The University of Colorado Boulder is taking action less than a month into the fall semester. CPR's Paolo Sholceda has been tracking the impact of COVID-19 on college campuses. Hi, Paolo. Hi, Avery. All undergraduate, graduate, and law classes at CU Boulder will be remote for the next two weeks. What does that entail? Students who live on campus are not being sent home. They are supposed to stay in their campus housing rooms, only going out for essential supplies like groceries. Some university facilities will remain open. CU's libraries and fitness center will continue to operate under current health guidelines. And research centers are not impacted by the shift to remote learning. Okay, so this shift to remote learning comes just a week after Boulder County Public Health strongly recommended students self-quarantine. And that's something that CU also implemented, right? Right. That self-quarantine went into effect September 15th. It's supposed to end 14 days later at midnight, this coming Tuesday, September 29. 
But with the shift to remote-only learning, it's clear that CU wants students to remain isolated longer. And of course, this is all to try to control the spread of COVID-19 on campus. School started just a month ago. How many cases have they had? As of Tuesday afternoon, there have been 859 positive cases discovered through on-campus testing since school started August 24. In just the two weeks leading up to the quarantine recommendation, 76% of all COVID cases in Boulder County were associated with CU students. And CU Boulder's fall headcount shows just under 35,000 students are enrolled this semester. What do we know about the source of the outbreaks? Cases have been tracked to off-campus parties. Four sorority houses and one fraternity house have had outbreaks, according to data from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. And CU's wastewater testing system also detected possible outbreaks in four dorms on campus. Now, Governor Polis talked about this situation on Tuesday. He said right now there's not yet evidence that the student outbreaks have led to greater community-wide outbreaks, right? Right. But he did say that's at the top of the list of concerns. We know that college students generally associate with one another, but many of them have jobs or work in the community. We're particularly concerned if they work in food services or retail, encountering many others. Uh, Hence, again, the supreme importance of mask wearing, both for those working in stores and restaurants, uh, as well as for patrons in stores. What are you hearing from students about this self-quarantine and shift to remote-only learning? CU's community is so large that it's hard to pinpoint exactly how students feel. But what I hear is a lot of frustration. Frustration because they can't have a normal college experience. Frustration because other students are partying when they're staying inside. Frustration that the university isn't being transparent or offering refunds. Here's something freshman Andrew Scott told me today. I see people walk out of the dining hall or, you know, walk out of the door and pull their mask off, right? Or just leave it around their chin. If you're going to have the, like, ability to just leave it around your chin, is it really that much harder to just pull it up and make it worthwhile to even wear? You spoke with a teacher about what's happening. Ph.D. candidate and instructor Danny Soibelman told you only six of her 30 students showed up to class last week. Yeah, she said she's glad the university is going remote, but thinks the outbreak was allowed to go uncontained for too long. She said she's, quote, beyond frustrated at this point and that it hurts her to be angry and she's just sad. She also said she expects the temporary shift will become permanent if infection rates continue to rise. I have very little hope that we'll come back. Even if we do, I can't imagine that happening without a severe amount of backlash from people like me who are sick of putting our lives and our students' lives and our community's lives on the line. Paolo, what happens if students are not following the guidelines? So students will face temporary suspension if they're found in violation of public health guidelines. Just this past weekend, 12 students were hit with this punishment. And four of the Greek houses I mentioned earlier were fined more than $10,000 for not following Boulder County's health guidelines. Now, we should note, CU Boulder is not alone in having issues with COVID-19 cases. Yeah, CU Boulder is the second major university in the state to shift to remote learning because of an uptick in cases. In Colorado Springs, Colorado College has moved most classes online, and it's reduced the number of students living on campus. CC quarantined three dorms in the first weeks of the semester. By comparison, the governor on Tuesday said there have been very few cases at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley or at Fort Lewis College in Durango. He also said that in the community college system with about 120,000 full and part-time students, there were only six cases as of last week. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Paolo. Anytime.
CPR's Paolo Scholzada tracking how COVID-19 is affecting college campuses in Colorado. The pandemic is, of course, a serious topic, but a Highlands Ranch family is determined to find a way to insert at least a little levity and perhaps grow closer together in the process. They've put their quarantine time to use by filming a YouTube sitcom. Jackie and Ben Derrickson created Whose Kids Are These, along with their five kids, as a way to pass the time and stretch the family's creative muscles. Okay, girls, so here's the plan. We're going to go to the basement. All right, guys. They're getting ready for the battle in their room. I'm going to go down first and make sure the coast is clear, okay? Once I find out the coast is clear, I'm going to come back for you, Hannah. You stay on your comms, okay? Stay on your walkie-talkie. That's from a dramatic laser tag sequence in episode two of the sitcom. Each of the three episodes so far is 20 minutes, which accounts for hours of writing, filming, and editing, much of which is done by Jackie and Ben, though they say the kids have a lot of input. I think we were just tired of watching reruns of other people's people's YouTube (laughs) YouTube stuff. And we're like, you know what? We've got so much content and we should just like go with it and make our own. So we did. Most of the scenarios come from real-life experiences of the blended family. Jackie and Ben met online, and they were married in 2019. Jackie's 10-year-old Hannah gained four new siblings, Owen, Andrew, Emma, and Matthew. Needless to say, the chaos of a newly joined family provides ripe fodder for their sitcom. I think they're getting tired of us saying hashtag content when something (laughs) happens, and they just say, can we just let this happen without it being on, on the show? Many scenes like the laser tag battle are goofy and lighthearted, but at times the script delves into more emotional territory, like part of episode three, when Hannah sits down in an empty house with Jackie. Mom, I missed them already. I remember when you couldn't wait for them to leave. Well, I'm kind of like Matthew. I get lonely sometimes. That's like math. You wanted a baby brother or baby sister, and your wish got multiplied. That's not the best example. I hate math. Also, I kind of wanted them to come one at a time. Mm. Well, I know going from an only child to having four siblings was a lot for you, but they had to add another sister to their drama. Um, I'm the least dramatic out of all these kids. Whose Kids Are These is a YouTube sitcom produced at home by the Derricksons, a family living in Highlands Ranch. They released their third episode last month. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with wildlife biologists taking on a mystery in the sky. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. 
Birds have literally been falling out of the sky, likely by the hundreds of thousands across the southwest, including areas of Colorado. Biologists are scrambling to learn the cause of the mysterious deaths before it's too late. Arvind Panjabi is an avian conservation scientist with Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. He joined us to make some sense out of this phenomenon. Arvind, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Avery. What do scientists like yourself think is happening with the birds to cause this recent die-off? Well, the bottom line is we don't know for sure, but there have been a few efforts to try to understand this better. One of those was uh, conducted by a graduate student at University of New Mexico who actually went out and collected some of the dead birds that had been reported. And she noted that uh, most of them had starved. They were well below their normal weight and were emaciated. So it appears that this cold snap that we had was really sort of the final blow for these birds that were in the middle of their migration. I imagine migrating birds need more food. What does this tell us about the food resources? Well, as you know, birds are entirely dependent on nature for finding their foods. And so when we have really dry episodes in the West like we've had this summer, insect life becomes in short supply. And that is the main food source for most migratory birds. Uh, So the dry summer uh, no doubt produced a less than abundant supply of insects. And then when this cold snap hit, the birds were left with nothing. And then that dry summer also has led to a really rough wildfire season. What has that meant for birds? That's right. So uh, the wildfires uh, have obviously displaced birds from those forests that are burning. And many of those birds might have been forced to leave before they were ready to leave. I mean, in order for birds to make this long-distance migration, they need to fatten up before they embark on a long-distance flight. So many birds may have been forced out of these areas and forced to find other areas in unfamiliar places uh, to find food to fatten up for their journeys. It could have also forced birds into other migratory pathways that they normally don't follow. For example, many of the birds in Western North America fly down the Pacific Flyway. And as we know, a lot of that has been burning in uh, Washington, Oregon, California. So those birds could have been forced more towards the interior of the continent uh, in places where there's less food normally. And what about the air quality? Does that have much of an effect on birds? Well, it can. Uh, We know that birds' lungs are very sensitive to uh, contaminants in the air. I mean, that is the whole reason why miners uh, in the 1800s brought canaries down into the coal mines, because their lungs reacted to poisons in the air much more quickly than humans could. So birds are sensitive to things in the smoke, like uh, carbon monoxide, but it's unclear how much that has impacted them. But on the other hand, it is unavoidable for them, so they must be ingesting some of that. And you and a group of scientists sounded the alarm last year when you released your study that found between 1970 and 2017, three billion birds were lost in the United States and Canada. What's happening now? Is that interconnected? Well, yeah. I mean, the... The article of the three billion birds lost, we don't specifically get into the trying to identify the causes because they are likely varied across all the species. There are some major themes that flow through across species. For example, you know, we've been converting more and more of our prairies into farmlands, and as a result, grassland birds have plummeted. But uh, 
one of the big unknowns that uh, unfortunately hasn't been set up to study very easily is the impacts of climate change on these populations. We know that the impacts can be very widespread when there are factors like drought that depress food supplies and likely suppress reproductive performance of birds. So uh, climate change can affect birds in many different ways, but it's very difficult to document those impacts. And I've noticed that I haven't heard the birds singing in my neighborhood in the morning. Is that just the season or are we actually losing their songs? Well, it, it is the season to some degree. This is not the time of year you normally hear a lot of bird songs. I did seem to notice on the days of heavy smoke that uh, the world just seemed to have gone quiet as if there were no birds around. Um, so the smoke may be playing some role there, especially on very bad days. But in general, we are losing that bird song that surrounds our homes, our forests, our fields. That is what we are losing as we continue to lose millions of birds from our environment. And in this most recent die-off, is there a certain type of bird that we're losing this summer? Well, this most recent uh, die-off has hit the insectivore guild very hard, and particularly swallows. Some of the reports of dead birds, swallows seem to make up the majority. And of course, swallows are 100% insectivorous. Interesting. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the, there were not enough insects in the air to support these birds. And of course, with a storm like we just experienced, there are no flying insects. Any insects that were flying uh, hunker down and get covered by snow. And so birds that depend on flying insects for finding their food like swallows, like flycatchers, they were especially hard hit by this storm. Two days of no food during the peak of migration was just too much. And what about the extreme swing in temperatures? We had that swing of 50 degrees earlier this month. Yeah, well, that is what caused these snows and extreme cold and caused the insect life to die or, or go dormant. Uh, so that cold, along with the strong winds that accompanied it, likely dealt the major blow to these birds. And are extreme temperatures more hard on birds than other animals? Well, they can be. I mean, birds have incredible feathers, right, that insulate their bodies uh, better than anything, almost anything else we know. But they need food. They have very high metabolisms. So without enough food, they can't survive those cold temperatures. Now, researchers rely on citizen scientists to help spot problems with birds. We caught up with Sieta Moss, a birder from Canyon City in the southern region of Colorado, who encountered a strange sight while driving right after the storm. On September 14th, I observed a very sad sight uh, with lots of birds down on the side of the roads where they would normally not be, uh, many of them uh, soaking wet from the terrible storm we had the night before where the temperatures plunged from the 90s into the upper 20s. And with snow and rain both, uh, the birds were unable to uh, fly somewhere on the road and would be run over, which would be uh, just something I didn't want to watch, and so I left. Sierra told us that she reported the struggling birds to an online Colorado bird group. What should someone do if they see a bird lying dead in a strange place like a driveway? Should they ignore it or report it? They should definitely report it. And there is a way to report those sightings easily. There's a project that's been started uh, in the iNaturalist app. 
Uh, iNaturalist app is a way to record observations of everything from birds to plants uh, that you encounter. And so they've started a specific project to gather information on these bird deaths. So you can find those birds and report them there and they get documented that way. And is there anything else that we can do to help birds survive? Yes, there is a lot we can do. Uh, I mean, obviously, we need to start taking climate change seriously. But beyond that, a lot of the causes of bird deaths are human-related. So there are things we can do. For example, one of the most important things we can do is to keep our cats indoors. Now, I'm a cat owner myself, and I love cats. And for the sake of the cats, it's also better to keep them indoors. Cats live a much longer life. They are not subject to diseases and you know, potentially being killed by other animals. Outdoor cats, cumulatively, are estimated to kill over 2 billion birds per year. You know, most of those are young birds that just leave the nest and are not very able to fly or escape. But that's a big impact. You know, when we have a total bird population of around 10 billion birds in North America, and they produce at least another 10 billion birds each year, but when cats take a third of that, that's a pretty significant uh, portion. So keeping your cats indoors is a very important thing that everyone can do to be a better guardian of the earth. One of the other major sources of human-induced mortality that uh, we've come to learn about are collisions with windows. And I'm sure everyone can relate to this, hearing a loud thud on a window and going outside and finding a dead bird on the ground below the window. There's ways to avoid that, to make our windows more visible uh, to birds. I mean, when birds see that window from the outside, they see a reflection of the skies and the trees. And in a moment of panic, when they might be uh, scared by another bird or some other predator, they might fly towards that window and collide. So having screens on the outside of windows can make a big difference. If that doesn't work, there are several techniques, uh, such as hanging strings, from the top of a window that hang down uh, the length of the window two to four inches apart. There are also reflective decals, paint. You can even you know, put artwork on the windows. Anything to break up that image of the reflection will help reduce bird deaths. Well, Arvind, I want to thank you so much for offering those tips and for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Avery. Arvind Punjabi is an avian conservation scientist with Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. When we come back, her name is synonymous with the state's gold and silver rush. We'll remember one of Colorado's most famous miners whose legacy has even inspired an opera. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mail ballots are having a moment. States and voters are rushing to embrace them as a pandemic protection measure. The president is attacking them, and the Postal Service may or may not be in a hurry to deliver them. I'm Benta Berkland. We're talking about all these concerns this week on Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Stars and Stripes, the U.S. military newspaper that's been around since the Civil War, has received a reprieve. The Pentagon is giving up on its efforts to shut the paper down after lawmakers and the president stepped in. CPR's Caitlin Kim takes a look at what the paper means to service members and what the future may hold for the Stripes. Put yourself in this situation. You're a young kid. You're in a foreign country. 
You don't speak the language. Nobody can understand you. And you needed a lifeline. That's what Eric Campbell faced as a young Marine stationed in Japan in the late 90s. His lifeline then was the Stars and Stripes. It was a bit of home that gave him the, just the facts, ma'am, news he needed. While the internet has made more news options available to service members, what hasn't changed is the Stripes' focus on news that affects members of the military and their families specifically. That's what Chelsea Brilla, a military spouse of 15 years and counting, appreciates about the paper. Whether that is different work schedules, different PT schedules for my husband, different financial benefits that are changing, different insurance benefits that are changing with TRICARE. Or how a temporary payroll tax deferment will impact the family's finances next year. That's when she turns to the Stars and Stripes. Major media outlets might mention this type of news in passing, but Brilla knows Stripes will follow it closely and drill down. The Pentagon zeroed out funding for the paper in its proposed budget in February. Earlier this month, it issued a memo preparing to shut the paper for good. And the response from military members and even members of Congress was swift and strong. Uh, It's something that's deeply personal to me. Colorado Congressman Jason Crow is an Army veteran who read the paper during his deployments. The House passed a defense spending bill that included funding for the stripes this summer. It's not the sole reason why the paper is staying open, but it helps that Congress is putting money where its mouth is. Certainly a victory that we were able to get this decision reversed, and uh, we're going to continue to advocate for it in the years ahead. Crow joined a letter with nine other House members to Defense Secretary Mark Esper, urging that the paper stay open. In the Senate, a bipartisan group of 15 senators did the same. But if anything ensured the paper's future, at least for the next fiscal year, it was a tweet from President Donald Trump. He wrote funding for Stars and Stripes wouldn't be cut under his watch. This was over a weekend where news organizations were reporting that the president had made disparaging remarks about fallen soldiers. Whatever the reason for the last-minute save, Ernie Gates, ombudsman for Stars and Stripes, is cautiously optimistic. I think Congress still has to act on the budget. And I believe that's going to happen probably after the election, no sooner. Over a week ago, the Pentagon said it would issue a new memo, one that rescinds the memo calling for the paper's closure. Still, it doesn't mean the paper's future is assured. It's been on the chopping block in previous administrations, too. And Gates thinks the less-than-friendly relations between the Trump administration and the media made it easy for the Pentagon to try and shut down the editorially independent paper this year. I think they were emboldened enough to say, this is our chance to, to get rid of this. Let's, let's take it. He and others point out that the budget for the paper is minuscule compared to the overall defense budget. $15.5 million for Stars and Stripes in the almost $740 billion budget. That said, Secretary Esper had argued that money could be better spent elsewhere. The paper is operated through the Pentagon's Defense Media Activity Office, which is overseen by the Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. Stars and Stripes publisher Max Lederer thinks this stay is a good time to also discuss the Stripes' future. How should it be funded? And what organizational entities should control the the operation of the organization? Should it be the public affairs community which sits today? Or should it be really part of the morale and welfare entity of DOD? That's because many see the paper as a benefit for service members. As Letterer puts it, the paper is about telling them what's happening on their left flank, right flank, and behind them. Moving the paper would be one way to diffuse the inherent tension between the independent news organization and its operational manager, which controls defense messaging and oftentimes has to answer tough questions from Stars and Stripes reporters. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News.
This report is part of the American Homefront Project, stories about veterans and military from CPR and its partners. It's made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week on September 25th, 155 years ago, a woman named Elizabeth McCourt was born. Her nickname later in life? Baby Doe, and her rags to riches to rags again story has inspired biographies, a film, even an opera. She came to Colorado in the 1870s during the gold rush, divorced her first husband, and later married Colorado's silver king, Horace Tabor. There's a historical novel based on her life called Gold Digger, The Remarkable Baby Doe Tabor. I spoke with author Rebecca Rosenberg last summer. Of all of the figures in Colorado history, why does Baby Doe Tabor capture your imagination? I really think that Baby Doe captures what little girls all hope to do, which is to grow up and live their exciting dream, the adventures that they can imagine. And Baby Doe did that. She came west to mine a gold mine with her husband in um, 1878. And he abandoned her when she was pregnant, and she was left to mine that gold mine alone. So she not only did that and became a local legend, but then she moved to Leadville, Colorado, where she met Horace Tabor. And at the time, Horace Tabor was not famous, and he hadn't discovered his silver mine yet. But shortly thereafter, he discovered the largest silver vein in history, and became mayor and governor, lieutenant governor, and a U.S. senator, all while loving Baby Doe. And theirs was an adventurous, exciting life. And there are so many pieces to that life. Let's back up a little bit. Before she was Baby Doe Tabor, she was Elizabeth Doe, married to Harvey Doe. They moved to Central City, Colorado, from Wisconsin to mine for gold. And that's probably where she got their nickname, Baby Doe. What was life like for a woman in a mining town back then? Well, back then, there weren't very many women at all. And the people that were in Central City were actually Chinese laborers and Indians and desperados like Doc Holliday and Jesse James trying to mine for gold. And here she is. She was a devout Catholic and just a young 22-year-old girl. And she enters Central City, this wild town, um, and it was purely frightening. And so really what she wanted to do is get up and mine that gold and get back to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where it was safe. And she did. A, she assisted with mining. She wore men's clothes and she really dove into it. How did she fit in? Well, she really didn't fit in at all because she, first of all, she was Catholic. She was a devout Catholic and there was a Catholic church in Central City. You can still see that today. But most everybody else was Protestant, so they didn't like her Catholic ways. And then she was so beautiful. You just have to Google her to see how gorgeous she is. And um, they didn't like that either because there weren't very many men, and they were all ogling the baby doe. So she didn't fit in right from the beginning. And despite the name of the book, gold digging really didn't work out for Baby Doe. Like you mentioned, she ended up divorcing her husband. What happened there? Well, it was just that he was 
a rich guy from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. He had inherited this gold mine from his father, and he started drinking and carousing with the... They did have prostitutes in these mining towns. They called them... They were lived in the cribs. And so she was found herself abandoned, and she knew she was pregnant, and it was winter. And so she was actually saved by one of the town haberdasher who helped her, which was Jake Sands, and he helped her and moved her to Leadville, Colorado. So then she said she had to divorce Harvey because he had abandoned her, and that was very difficult to do because only half a percent of people ever divorced in those days, but she did it, and she worked in the haberdashery in Leadville. And while she was in Leadville, she falls in love with Horace Tabor. Tell us a little bit more about who he was. Well, at that time, Horace Tabor was mayor of Leadville, and he had just been made mayor. And the year before, he had just struck that biggest silver mine in history, the biggest silver vein, and that was the Pittsburgh mine up there. And they had made him mayor, and Leadville, if you can believe it, went from 200 people in this little mining camp to the next year it was 5,000 people. The year after it was 20,000 people. The year after that it was 40,000 people. So that was an amazing thing that Horace Tabor had to wrestle down as mayor. And so he got involved with doing newspapers, doing water treatment plants, if you can believe that, then doing fire stations. He was an amazing entrepreneur. And, of course, Horace was already married, and you portray his marriage to his first wife, Augusta, as pretty rocky. What do we know about Horace and Baby Doe's affair and eventual marriage? Um, They were really a love story, but let's go back to Augusta Tabor. She had been with Horace for 20 years. They had been married for 20 years, and they had had mercantiles in all of the gold country, and they were just scraping by a living. But what Horace always wanted to do is run off and be a prospector. So that's why Augusta Tabor was always mad at him. She wanted him to stay in the mercantile and help her, and he was the postmaster. So he should have been there by her side helping her. So she was never kind to him, and that's really historical from what I have been able to find out, that she was didn't treat him very nicely. So, of course, when he meets this beautiful baby doe who had been mining a gold mine alone, and he all of a sudden is this miner who is buying up hundreds of mines now that he has money, they really hit it off. So theirs was a match made in heaven, except that he had to hide her away as his mistress, and she hated that. So she was in the um, penthouse in Denver at the Windsor Hotel, and then Augusta Tabor was in the big Tabor mansion. And Baby Doe just hated that and wanted to leave, but she was so in love with Horace Tabor. Now, your novel continues to trace their relationship through the silver crash of the 1890s and eventually to Horace's death. But I want to talk a little bit more about just how you dramatize historical fiction. This book is a novel and you've rearranged some of the parts of history and imagined some relationships. How do you make those choices and where did you draw your historical information? 
Where I really turned the corner on that was reading all of Baby Doe's diaries at History Colorado because she wrote from her heart, and I could really see what kind of woman she was, how religious she was, how much the affair hurt her, how when she was shunned by all of Denver for marrying Horace Tabor, that it really hurt so much. So it's it's wonderful to be able to read her actual writings and be able to tell her story in Gold Digger. And one of the choices that you made is in this historical fiction that really intrigued me. Jin Lin Su is a real person. He was called the mayor of Chinatown. There isn't necessarily evidence that he knew Baby Doe, but he's really important in your novel. He looks out for her and a couple of times saves her life. Can you talk to me about that choice? Yeah. So I found out about Chin Lin Su from my friend here in California. I was telling him I was writing this novel, and he told me that his great-great-grandfather had managed all the Chinese crews that were mining in Central City. Then when I found out that he was there when Baby Doe was there, I realized that there was a strong possibility that they did know each other because he was... He was the boss of all the Chinese crews, and she had a gold mine. So I did make that leap and make him very important in the story. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Rebecca Rosenberg is the author of Gold Digger, the remarkable Baby Doe Tabor. We spoke last summer. Baby Doe was born on September 25, 1865. She was inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame in 1985, We'll leave you now with the opera she inspired, The Ballad of Baby Doe, performed here by the Central City Opera in 2006. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oh,